Hi, my name is Mo, and you are listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Today, we have episode 314 for March 6th, 2023. And we've got a really great interview for you today. I had a chance to speak with the CEO and founder of a really great, secure, end-to-end encrypted notes-taking app called Standard Notes. And if you're like me and you you love to take lots and lots of notes and like to keep them organized, uh, this is a really great tool. But we're going to talk about not not just the Standard Notes product, but what it's like to design a secure application from the ground up, having security by design. And there's lots of trade-offs to be made. Uh, There are some really handy features that people have gotten used to having that are really difficult or even impossible to implement when your app has full, true, end-to-end encryption. Designing an app for the ground up with privacy and encryption is just not easy. Also, we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, where do you draw the line with privacy? At what point does it ruin the experience and prevent you from being meaningfully productive? And Mo has struggled with these questions, you know, where to draw that line, both professionally in terms of how to design the app and where to make those trade-offs with the application itself with features versus you know, security. And even turns out personally, he was off the grid for several years. He was a, as a private person and he wanted to kind of keep his data out of the internet as much as possible. And then he recently changed his mind on that. So we're going to talk about all that stuff today. And of course, since I've got somebody here and I'm kind of OCD about my own organizational stuff, I thought I would pick his brain a little bit on, you know, note taking and data organization techniques in general, including this notion of second brain, uh, which is an interesting philosophy. We'll talk about that today. A couple quick terms we talk about. He does quickly mention a term uh, called bit rot, which is really just a fun way of saying data degradation. Uh, And, you know, we think of bits and bytes as kind of being perfect, but they're not that storage media do give out over time and there are accumulated errors over time. So your digital data actually can degrade over time. And so if you've got things that you want to keep for a long period of time, you need to be thinking about that. And so we'll talk a little bit about that as well. And I've actually got a personal solution for that, that I'll dig into a little bit more after the interview. He also mentions UI and UX Uh, A UI is the user interface. That is how you interact with your computer or with an application. A graphical user interface or GUI or GUI is like, you know, the the buttons and switches and knobs and drop down menus and all that kind of stuff. That's part of, you know, every application, every software application is its graphical user interface. And then UX is user experience. So that's a little bit more holistic about how you interact with these applications. So when he talks about UI and UX, that's, that's what he's talking about. All right, I think that's enough of an introduction. Let's get to our interview with Mo from Standard Notes. All right, Mo is the creator of Standard Notes, an end-to-end encrypted note-taking application. Uh, Welcome to the show, Mo. Hey, Kerry, thanks for having me. Uh, All right, let's start with some basics for people who have not heard of it. Uh, What is Standard Notes and why did you create it? And then, of course, you know, what are maybe the key features that differentiate standard notes from all the other, and and there are many note-taking apps. Yeah. So standard notes is an end-to-end encrypted note-taking application that focuses on privacy and security in a manner that I think other applications would find very inconvenient and impractical. And (laughs) in fact, we do sort of inconvenience ourselves to build Mm. this level of of privacy and, and security. And so to start with, it's end-to-end encrypted. And what that means is that every tiny keystroke you type in standard notes is encrypted with a key that is exists only on your device. And that key is generated on your device and it never leaves your device. And so every keystroke that you type is encrypted with that key. It's then synced to your account on our secure servers. And then it's available on all your other devices. And when you go and sign in on your other devices, your key is generated again from your password, your data is decrypted. And, and so that end-to-end encrypted privacy is our most important attribute. And um, yeah, it's, it's, very, it's very hard to build, I would say. Mm. And it, it definitely limits the kind of things, the kind of experiences you can build. And so we have a hardcore focus on security and privacy. And, and perhaps we'll, we'll dig into the difference between these two terms. Uh, you know, mm. there's some c- 
question as to whether these two are different. But so on the security front, obviously, you have the end-to-end encryption, you have two-factor authentication. But on the privacy front, and, and this is where it, it's it's where we start to get into the soft core sort of things that protect you. Um, we don't have any sort of tracking or analytics. We don't know what you're doing with our app. We don't know if the app crashes, uh, for mm-hmm. better or for worse. Right. Uh, we don't have uh, third-party email services. So a lot of services use MailChimp to keep in touch with you. And uh, the problem with that is every time someone signs up, we have to give MailChimp your email. Well, we don't want right. to do that. So your email stays within our ecosystem. And, and we built our own email campaign system. And oh, wow. That's, it's a lot of work to I'll do bet. that. Uh, yeah. Well, and I, I punted on that. I use MailChimp. I, I'll admit it because I don't have time for that. I, I, just me. I, I, I don't have any any time or effort. I'm a software engineer, but I don't want to create that and have to support and update that myself. That So kudos, hats off. That's that's amazing. I actually had people reach out to me and say, hey, Carrie, I'm on your newsletter. And, you know, my email program says it's got trackers. And I'm like, yeah, I know, you know, use blockers. You know, I, I, this is analytics that I don't control. MailChimp puts them in there. I can't even tell them not to. So I totally get what you're saying. And I struggle with that myself. So, yeah, All I right. get it. That, that Hats off. That That is really amazing. And when yeah. you talk about end-to-end encryption, um, that is something that it's kind of like a, a buzzword that gets thrown around so many times. And there's been a lot of companies, including Zoom, that have gotten busted saying we have end-to-end encryption when it's really not end-to-end encryption. Uh, and, and in a lot of cases, it could be encrypted, but they have the keys, which you're saying you go to great pains not to have. So it, it, help us understand you know, what it really means to be truly end-to-end encrypted. So we don't... Uh, so for, for us, I guess end-to-end encryption, would, or, or the definition of end-to-end encryption... One is, you know, we say on our website that we believe the end-to-end encryption, the, the, the definition of it, of course, is that, uh, firstly, that both ends are open source. And, mm. um, you know, I think that's a soft core aspect that people don't consider. It's that a lot of end-to-end encrypted services are expect you to take their word for it. And you can mm. if you want to, but um, uh, for us, it, open source is important. But regarding the, the technical definition of, of end-to-end encrypted, it, it's simply that the the data is encrypted on your end and then synced or, or potentially, well, presumably there's another end that you're, you're sort of uh, sending the data to. But it means that the receiving server cannot read your data. So we, as standard notes, cannot read the contents of your notes or your thoughts or your ideas or anything like that. We don't know the title of your notes. We don't know the title of your tags. We don't know anything. And even if we wanted to know, we couldn't find out. So the data is encrypted with a key that exists only on your device and on applications that are open source, that are independently audited by, uh, in our case, uh, you know, leading security researchers, Q53, Trail of Bits, um, really well-established uh, researchers. And so I-, I think in some cases, you can think of end-to-end encryption as just a technical definition, but for us, it's more of an ecosystem of parts that come together to create a, a wholly private experience. Yeah, and your note about you know even the titles and the tags aren't encrypted. That's important because there's a lot of cases where they have end encryption for maybe the content, but not a lot of the metadata, and that, sometimes that metadata is extremely revealing. So that that's important to understand as well. And open source, that's uh, yeah, those are all ticking the right boxes. You and I were just talking a little bit about this before we got on the air, but uh, what does privacy mean to you personally? And I I know that. For me, even my feelings on this have evolved over the years as I've talked to more experts and read more books and just learned more. So, you know, what what does privacy actually mean to you? And then, you know, in your experience at, at doing what you're doing, what are some of the biggest misunderstandings people have about privacy? Yeah, the, the, you know, the, the term privacy is so loaded. And <laughs> this is this question I, I struggle with a lot, and it really depends on when you ask me and, and the time of the year and have I eaten breakfast yet? And so I struggle with it personally because I, I've been dealing with privacy for the last six, seven years. And I'm always like trying to plus one my own thoughts mm. and like challenge them, break them apart. And of course they're broken apart by counter arguments from the outside. And I, I think fundamentally privacy to me is is the right to be left alone, to, mm. to not be interrogated especially when my actions are innocuous and I'm just trying to explore and learn more about the world. I think there's a fear that a lot of privacy-minded people have is that, look, we're not trying to harm anyone. We're actually just very inquisitive. We're curious. And we don't want to be bothered when we push the edge of what is, 
I don't know, socially acceptable for us to think about or to question. And I, I find that a lot of times when I need privacy, it's when I'm thinking about or, or, or acting on or researching something that isn't, uh, I don't know, uh, societally acceptable, but by some, by some legions right. and uh, the, the definition of which legions accept what changes right. over time. And so you have to future-proof your actions. It, it could be very well that all the things that I search today are, are totally fine, but of course, 10 years from now, they may not be. And, mm-hmm. and so privacy people have this in the back of their minds at all times. And, and I feel in some cases, it's, it's a little debilitating because it's it's almost like a hobby. Privacy becomes like a a, a fun little like espionage game. It's like how oh yeah how much yeah how much can I can I hide my actions from from this theoretical hmm. agent who's, who's who's monitoring me? But you know, I, I guess in the United States where where I guess you and me are from, uh, it is sort of a hobby to to some extent, but. It's difficult to say that because it could be that another country is like China, Russia, or Iran or something. It's really not a hobby. It could mm-hmm. be life or death. And this is where I struggle to also define privacy. It's like, is it privacy for me, privacy for you, privacy for society, privacy for a different country? It's It, it differs depending on oh, the yeah. context. Yeah, and, there are layers. Um, exactly. And so I, I don't know. I, I t- I've i gone through phases where I've overdone it and I'm like, what am I doing? Who am I doing this for? Like, you know, I'd go on a website, uh, e-commerce website, and they'd ask, ask for my zip code to, to help me locate stores. And I'm like, nope, not giving you my zip code. And it's yeah. like, okay, well, it's a good privacy measure, but I feel like I'll probably just benefit from giving them my zip code. And there's very little they could really glean about me from a zip code. And so I, I struggle to also define the lines. It's like I, there are there's demographical data about me and things like my... I don't know, my location, my age, my interests. To me, I, I guess I've decided those are somewhat low stakes hmm. compared to things that I actively think or type or, or you know, write about. Um, so, I, I don't know. I guess it got really bad for me when, you know, over the last six, seven years, I haven't put my face on the internet. I haven't put my voice on the internet why? Because I'm private. I don't want to, yeah, I don't want people to 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 get to know me on the internet. It's like, who are these people? And uh, it got to the point where I really didn't gain anything from that. As a creator on the internet, you have to put yourself out there. And I found that this whole privacy notion, the way I was defining privacy, was just holding me back in my goals. And... Um, you, you sort of, if you are a creator on the internet, you have to go and speak about your product. You have to be extroverted online. And, and that is in the face of privacy sometimes. You do have to degrade your privacy a little bit. And I just found that a very uncomfortable notion, especially as someone who's building a privacy product. And and so you can just see that, yeah, I waver on the definition of privacy. But, you know, one thing that is clear to me now is that while uh, for me, I oscillate with how I view privacy, Encryption, I do not oscillate on. I do not waver on. Encryption mm-hmm. to me is hardcore. Like I never struggle to define the importance of encryption to me, the, encry- the importance of encryption to society. You can, like, look, I'm not saying you have to choose here, but if it were a choice, take my privacy, take my search queries, take my demographic data. You can't, you'll never take my encryption. I don't care if you tell me that people will die if... <sighs> We don't get rid of encryption. And they do I'm tell not, you that. And the, they <laughs> law do. enforcement will tell you that. Exactly. And uh, yeah, encryption is something I, I will never waver on. And to me, that's fundamental. And I think that that's, that's you know, something worthy of its own constitutional amendment, the right to encrypt. I don't think that should ever be infringed upon. So what do you think that most people don't get when they think about privacy and the, the average person? I mean, a lot of people in this audience certainly have heard me preach about privacy for, depending on how long you've been listening, for several years now. And if you're, you know, if you tune into this stuff and you probably are aware of this, but certainly as I find people that I talk to day to day, I get a lot of different views on what they think privacy is and maybe misunderstandings about where the real threats to privacy are. So in your life and you're interacting with people in the privacy realm and trying to convince people that they need something like standard notes over you know, OneNote or Google Docs or whatever. What do you find that people misunderstand the most about privacy? I think to me personally, 
when I try to define privacy or how people misunderstand, I think the word itself is just sort of amorphous and ambiguous. It's hard to know what we're fighting for when we talk about privacy. And I, I think that in some cases, it's like, it's clear that I suppose with encryption, our adversary is governments who try to take it away. And with privacy, it's usually corporations that we're trying to protect our privacy from because governments know all your all your demographical data. Mm. So when we talk privacy, I feel like we're talking about protecting our privacy from third party companies um, who may otherwise share our data in ways we didn't intend. And when we talk about encryption, it's usually that actually companies will give you encryption. They don't if it's technically possible or if it doesn't go against their their revenue model. And, and so I, I feel that there is a I don't know. I, I'm sort of wearisome uh, of our prospects with how we handle privacy in law. It's like a lot of people fight for privacy, and 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 if you ask them to go to the street to fight for privacy, it's um, I don't know. If you were to ask me, go go lobby your your legislators for privacy. It's like, well, okay, can, what is privacy? Like, what would I specifically ask for? Mm-hmm. Or am I asking for my data not to be shared? Or of course, I would want that. And, and so. I feel that it sort of dilutes the whole argument for encryption. Um, I think legislators would love to give us privacy. So many bills are passing every day that are really great privacy laws, Mm -hmm. but legislators want to take encryption away and they'll never give up on that. And so, I don't know, I I feel like it, I I want to be careful saying this, but it's, I feel like privacy can be a distraction at times from focus because you got to be careful what you wish for because if all you get is privacy, but you don't get encryption, then we lose. And um, obviously the goal should be to get both. Mm. But if we had to choose, I'd say focus on encryption. That's the thing they really want to take away from us. And that's the thing we should never relent on. And so if I had to or, uh, order these two, I, I would choose to fight for encryption very concretely. And privacy, I think, yes, obviously, like, yes, Companies shouldn't be sharing our data when we don't want them to. And, and there should be stricter laws around how data is shared, uh, especially our health data and things like that, and even our search data. But I think these are easily uh, fought. These are easily gained relatively, mm. whereas encryption is really existential. And I don't feel it surely does get its fair share of attention, but not as much as privacy. Mm. And so th- th- these two terms, I feel... I, to me, uh, is the biggest misunderstanding about privacy. I want to dig in a little bit to your your specific situation. You've built a web app for the most part. You've got a native app, but it, we, we don't have to get into too many details about the differences there. But it's primarily a web app for these for these notes, and it's that is a very different environment than doing a standalone native application, one that you would install and run from like the Apple App Store, for example. So web apps run as code within your web browser. It's almost like a, a container or a VM, and it's like a different way to run code. So uh, I'm curious, what are the implications of this when it comes to security and privacy? Like, for example, if I'm running this as a web app, should I worry about my browser uh, or the plugins that I have? What, for example, what could the Chrome browser or some rogue plugin get up to mischief when running a, a web app in terms of security and privacy? Yeah, so it's definitely true that with, with web apps, every time you type in your browser uh, URL bar, you are re-requesting all the assets from the server, more or less. And the server could just give you anything. And so if you say it's an end-to-end encrypted secure note-taking app, well, what's stopping our servers from just giving you anything anytime you request a website? And this is the argument against web apps or even just <laughs> software in general, to be honest, when it comes to encryption. But the truth is, you know, Anywhere on the internet, anywhere you're dealing with software, you're dealing with software that needs to update itself for privacy, for security updates just as well. And so even if you're talking about a desktop app, all desktop apps auto-update. And you can turn that off, but of course you miss out on security updates then. Mm -hmm. And so it's a balance. And so I think what web browsers do is they just make it really obvious how transactional that is. And they make the, the, the distance really short because it happens every refresh, whereas a desktop app might update every week or so. But, you know, so I I don't think that the web app introduces, or the web browser necessarily introduces anything that a mobile app or or desktop app doesn't introduce. It's just much quicker and much more obvious. But it's clear that 
um, you know, short of just unplugging or, or cutting the cord on the back of your computer, coming onto the internet means accepting that you will have code coming from somewhere else. And um, there are ways to counteract that. And for us, we sign our code. So if you, so we'll talk about the, the desktop app quickly first, and then we'll talk about the, the, the limitations of web apps and web browsers. So on our desktop app, we sign our code with physical tokens and software tokens. And this means that when you run the desktop app on your computer on macOS on Windows, if you don't see an alert that says, we can't trust this, we can't verify the signature, it means you're good to go. And it means that the code you're running was attested to by a standard notes employee. On the web browser, there are really no such mechanisms to have like signature comparisons, which is weird because it should be possible. Actually. Right. It's, it seems like it's something that should have been solved by now. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why browser vendors haven't taken to solving this problem. Hmm. I, I think uh, WhatsApp and Cloudflare did partner up to come up with their own custom solution uh, for this exact problem, which is that you would uh, compute like a uh, fingerprint or a checksum of your web application assets. You'd submit that hash to a third-party registry like a someone that's not you, that they hold on to that signature. And when you load the web app, it computes the signature and compares it to that third-party signature. And if they match, well, it, it means that you are loading what you think you're loading. And I would love to see a world where web browsers take on this problem. To me, it seems pretty simple. I don't know what's holding them back. It could just be that a lot of these services aren't shipping really critical security applications via mm. the web. And so they don't necessarily prioritize it. But perhaps this will change as Apple gets into this industry where they're, they're starting to have to offer end-to-end -end encryption. And you know if you access your iCloud account or your notes or something online, perhaps now they'll start waking up to this. But I think it should be possible. But yeah, I, I don't necessarily think that this limitation isolates web browsers or web apps uh, any different from, from mobile apps or, or any auto-updating piece of software. The only, if you really want to be safe and careful and sure get the source code, compile your own application and run it from there. But, you know, who's going to do that? Um, right. right. So yeah, there is, there is trust. There's an aspect of trust. You know, cryptography is trustless, but ultimately we get our cryptography from, from humans uh, or, or humans provision servers and the like. So, yeah. And it's, it's one of these rabbit holes you could quickly go down, you, you know, you'd get the tinfoil hats out and get really, you know, super paranoid. Cause it, it, at the end of the day, you've got to trust something. I mean, your operating system, you're trusting it to verify the signatures on these things and, and do the, you know, downloading and checking of uh, checksums and all these uh, certificates. And you're, you're assuming that, that those haven't been compromised in the same way that you're assuming your browser is not injecting JavaScript code or things like that into the apps you download, you know, it's really it's really easy to go off the deep end on some of these things and, and so yeah that's that's the thing we have to, uh, we all have to live with so yeah yeah i think the benefits of you know privacy and security are pretty obvious probably to my audience certainly i would think but these things security and privacy often are at odds with convenience and in particular what i'd like to talk about with you is are there any common features that most people have come to enjoy with web apps that just aren't possible or have to be done in a really weird way when you start having to have security and privacy. For example, I know that, you know, if you have a cloud storage with Dropbox, uh, they is encrypted, but they hold the key, which allows them to search through your files. If you want to search Dropbox, do a text search for all the documents you have in Dropbox, they can do that because they have the encryption key. Whereas if they don't, you, you, you can't do that unless it's locally and you're doing it. You can't do it on the web, for example. So have you run into common features like that people have been requesting and like, well, I'd love to, but I, I can't because, you know, I, my primary goal is to keep, keep this secure. And so therefore I can't do that. Right. Well, so the thing about end-to-end -end encryption is it's not really a feature. It's, it's a whole paradigm shift where mm. you're shifting the, the burden of computation from the server onto the client. And what that means is that Typically, servers are, are very, very powerful, infinitely powerful relative to clients. You can do anything you want on the back end. I mean, a client can be interfacing, uh, and a client application is just the, the thing you hold in your hand. Uh, a client application can be interfacing with a server via like a, a, a single endpoint, and, and that server could just be a cluster of supercomputers. And, and you, you, you wouldn't know, you wouldn't realize. Mm -hmm. and, and so there's this advantage that, that servers have it, it, 
in, in power, in sheer raw power that clients can never have. I mean, clients' devices, your iPhone, they're getting more and more powerful, but so are servers. And so that gap will always be the same. So, you know, end-to-end encryption isn't just a feature, which is why you don't see applications just tacking it on over time. It's like, uh, as, a, as an evolution, you have to kind of start there. And it's very, very hard to, to add into encryption because it's a, it's a whole paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. So obviously you have limitations of computation and performance. And so search, for example, servers are very good at search. Client-side devices are decent at search, but obviously just depends on the data size. So yeah, th- there's, a, there's a huge uh, disparity there uh, with features, uh, things like integration with other apps. Mm-hmm. A lot of people really enjoy with things like Notion or Zapier, things, the ability to just connect all of your applications via mm-hmm. APIs. When you, when you start dealing with encryption, it's really hard to open yourself up to the outside world because uh, there, there is no sort of, um, well, you know, l- let's say we wanted to offer an API for sending notes. That means that you'll have to give your keys up to some server and that will just completely ruin the premise of end-to-end encryption. And, and mm-hmm. so uh, things like integrations and Let's say, you know, there's ways to do it, but it's just, it's, it's very cumbersome. Mm. And now more than ever, I think one of the biggest limitations will be AI processing, which a mm. lot of applications that don't have to worry about encryption and privacy and security, they are having a, a wonderful time right now integrating OpenAI's mm. uh, chat GPT-like mm. APIs in their applications. And, you know, every other day there's a new productivity application sharing a tweet about, you know, look what you can do now. You can summarize, you can generate, you can predict. And, you know, here we are sending notes. We're like, well, we'll never do that. You know, we're never going to, and for better or for worse, right? right, I, I right, mean, right. W- w- one is it, it, you can be sure that we will we'll hold up your privacy and security. And, and for, for us, we don't compete on on features. We don't compete on productivity features. We compete on privacy and security and, and hardcore encryption. This is something that most other applications just disregard. And, you know, we, we both find our own consumers, right? It's like there, there are some people that might uh, want the productivity more than the security. And so it depends on your use case. But for us, if you're looking for hardcore privacy, hardcore security, you know where we stand and you know what kind of compromises we'll make and, and things like a, a open AI integration is just really out of the question. Right. Uh, so you, you talked about how much you value uh, encryption, but, but it's one thing to, to say that you should be, have the ability to encrypt whatever you want in a way such that only, only you and perhaps your intended recipient can, can decrypt it. But uh, from a practical standpoint, should we really encrypt everything? Uh, you know, I've you know, I've encrypted my hard drive, for example. I, I guess I've probably, by default, will encrypt most things. But for for example, if if I were to die and I didn't do things properly, all of a sudden everything I ever did would be lost to my relatives. Like they would not, unless they, unless I somehow was smart enough to, to to hand off a key or passwords or things to them, it would just be gone. All that they would be gone. Are there are there downsides to encrypting everything? Should we encrypt everything? And if not, how should we think about what we might not want to encrypt? I think it depends on the individual. Encryption is just a key, right? That's all it is. And so the question is, how responsible are you? How much do you trust yourself? Are you the kind of person to lose things often? And, and uh, well, you know, I would say re- re- forget things, but if you're responsible, you'd have ways to, to, to copy your key, your, your digital key into the physical world. And so I, I think if you were to say to yourself, look, here is a, a trove of data that I'm going to encrypt with this key that I will never, ever, ever forget. If you are the type of person that can make that statement, then absolutely encrypt everything. For me, there are passwords that I'll just never forget. And they, they're very, they're probably two or three, right? Any more than that, then it, it starts to get really risky. Right. As long as you trust yourself to be that responsible, then you really lose nothing from encryption aside from, let's say, any sort of productivity benefits you gain from better or more powerful client applications. So, you know, if you try to thought experiment it, you know, it's like, what is the difference between just encrypting everything, not encrypting everything? Well, one, you you just gain a lot more uh, peace of mind and privacy, but of course it's a lot more responsibility. And so I think it depends on the individual. I think tech savvy people are very capable of 
remembering something or, or, or knows, know what it takes to remember something and not forget it. Whereas if the question is, should everyone enable uh, Apple's advanced data protection program? I would say no. I mean, that program terrifies me. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's because, um, well, one, it's new and I, I haven't um, mm. sort of, I, I don't know what it entails and, and I haven't tested the recovery methods and all these things. Yeah. And I know you said in one of your, your episodes, you're, you're building up to it too. And I think that's mm. kind of where we are is, is we, we have to sort of scope it out a little bit. But whether everyone should encrypt everything, I don't know. I, I think that there are t- types of data that lend themselves to encryption very well. Things like, I don't know, your, your keys, your password, legal documents, financial documents, um, things that would sort of like be bad if it got stolen or, mm. or leaked or something. But then there's data like photos of your dog or even just all the photos you have on your iPhone. Um, I don't necessarily, I don't, for, like for myself, again, I, I wouldn't have a hard time enabling end-to-end encryption for that. But if my wife were to ask me, should I enable this? I'm, I might give her a more nuanced response. And I, I might say, well, are you ready for this? And are you ready to own your, are you really ready to finally own your data? Mm-hmm. Because all this time, these, the companies have been holding it for us and owning it for us. And these right. people are a lot more responsible for the most part mm-hmm. than, than we are. And so I, I guess, you know, it's a, it's a decision that people have to make. And um, I, you know, assuming my wife did ask me that and, and I said, are you ready? I, I don't, I feel like I, I'll have to give a bunch of disclaimers that mm. will just sound terrifying. It's like, well, are you ready to lose your 30,000 photos if you forget this thing? And it's like, okay, she might ask, well, okay, no, I'm not ready. So why should I even enable this? I really don't care if Apple sees, you know, Apple's got the best security in the world. Mm. Uh, and so these are the kind of questions that we'll be up against. So I think advanced data protection, uh, I think Craig Federighi was asked by, by the Wall Street Journal, why is this not enabled for everyone? And he's, uh, you know, I don't I remember exactly what he said, but he's like, you know, whoa, slow down. Like, you know, we, we have to be careful about this. This is a big, big deal. Yeah. This is people's data. This is people's life we're talking about. And so I think it's up to the individual and tech savvy people should have no problem just encrypting everything. I don't think it's really that risky. You, you definitely want to be strategic. You definitely want to have physical backups of your keys. The problem is, like I've had to do this before I took trips, a uh, long trip, like uh, being on an airplane or something, which absolutely terrifies me. Mm. And uh, I, I've had to s- set up a, a program for my wife. Like, look, if I don't come back here, here's where you can find everything. You don't want to put all your passwords in one place in your house because it's too centralized. So you want to scatter them around your house, put like r- little r- riddles and puzzles. And uh, <laughs> the problem is then you forget where you put all these things. Mm-hmm. And so th- there are ways, there are definitely ways but but it does become kind of a game and you do have to be very responsible. And so you, you just have to sort of, uh, I don't know, you, you have to trust in yourself and you have to know what you want. Uh, but ultimately, you know, encryption is very powerful. It's very important and it, it, it gives you great peace of mind, but it, it does come at a slight cost. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> I struggle with that myself all the time to figure out where I'm going to draw the line. As someone who's in a position to make lots of recommendations, I've been struggling a lot lately with the notion of trust. And I've had the opportunity to speak actually to a lot of founders of products lately. It's been great. And I've asked all of them this question in one form or another. And that is, when you create a product that is explicitly about privacy and security, how do you earn and keep people's trust? And then maybe on a more general level, you know, when you're talking to regular everyday people, how do you tell them how to evaluate the trustworthiness of other products and services? That, that's a really tricky question, but I'd like to hear what your, your thoughts are on that. Right. So I think you can sort of um, gauge this really, make a nice model when you evaluate like cryptocurrencies who, that's the number one question in cryptocurrencies. Well, how do you, how do you trust new currencies and the answer is never trust the new ones of course but mm. you know bitcoin the reason it's so valuable is that it, it has stood the test of time longer than anyone else and so time is an important one i think it's it's if any new software comes out tomorrow that promises full end-to-end encryption it may very well be very robust but you don't know until time passes and how much time is is up to you uh, you know some people may be comfortable it, obviously time but also 
uh, usage, if it's time but little usage mm. or, or, or little adoption, then really doesn't count much for uh, at all. And so it depends on, the, on, on your threshold for time, but I would say a good number of years of something having stood the test of time being on the market is a good indicator, not, not, not the complete indicator, but it, it definitely adds some percentage to the picture. Mm-hmm. Um, open source, of course. There, there are obviously a lot of secure software that we use today that isn't open source. Like 1Password isn't mm-hmm. open source, but they have you know great, uh, great security record, great transparency. They do audits continually. But I don't think, you know, like I said in the, in the beginning of this call, I think that if, if you say end-to-end encryption, the definition should mean that both ends are open source. Otherwise, you're dealing with trust again, trust of private parties. And the whole point of encryption and cryptography is to reduce trust. And so I, I think open sourcing both ends is something that a lot of incumbents aren't very comfortable doing. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't necessarily think it's that risky. I don't think the value of your company exists in the code. I, I don't think someone, especially for like an app, right? An app like a password manager, it, it's there's no proprietary sort of aspect to it. it it's uh, there's plenty of them. So I don't think the advantage is in the in the sort of code. It's in the emergent ecosystem, and so you, you know we tweeted on, on our standard notes account uh, that this sort of opinion. And, and we say, you know, what are these companies, what do they have to hide? And obviously it, it's a, it, it's too provocative of a question. It's like, well, what are they hiding? Well, you know, I, I don't think one password is hiding anything, mm-hmm. but then why not? Right? Like why not? And and to me, I don't know the answer to that uh, other than just legacy behavior, other than it's a different culture. It's very easy to do if you've, you've done it from day one, but to, to open up halfway through your life cycle is, 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 opening up to a brand new culture. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, time, open source, and then audits are extremely important. I think without audits, actually this would sort of trump all the other ones is that you have to make sure your code has been reviewed by a third party more than once. Um, the thing about audits, of course, is that they're, they're very strenuous. They take a lot of time. They're very expensive. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people sort of defer the, the audits and a lot of people are afraid of what they might find out. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so that scares them a, a little bit too, but audits are, are essential and anyone who's sort of been in the privacy or in the security space long enough will tell you the importance of, of audits. And I think those three factors will be the most important things. I mean, if you have an application that's independently audited, it's open source that, that stood the test of time, beyond that, I, I can't imagine that anything else matters, you know, whether the, the their culture or the way they speak, the way, how open their CEO is. I mean, these are all things that can be feigned more or less. Yeah, any of the other sort of soft signals are, are easy to to sort of uh, simulate. Well, what I'd like to see a lot of these companies, I'd like to see, and, and I, I get this from you and I've gotten this from several of the people I've interviewed, is a certain level of humility. There's, you know, there's a lot of companies that will come out of the gate with heavy duty marketing terms, you know, military grade encryption. And, you know, they throw all these buzzwords around and, and they make a lot of claims that are obviously over the top. And I, re- I really appreciate it when, when companies come out and say, look, we're doing the best we can. That's why I think it was just so it was awesome that, uh, you know, like Phil Zimmerman called his thing pretty good privacy. It was pretty, it's actually really good privacy, but I mean, you know, it's that humble mindset of like, I could be wrong. I'm doing my best. I, I don't want to make any claims beyond what I could absolutely prove and show you that I could, uh, that I could prove. So I, I personally, when you're talking about like the soft edges of, uh, of, of the marketing and what you're looking at, I like to find companies that are really, you know, straightforward about what they can and can't do. You know, it's it's hard to to market yourself as a security product and position yourself because you have yeah you have to be humble and and in fact the ones that scream the loudest are s- sort of the most wary and I, it took a long time for us to to say on our on our even on our homepage that uh, you know to, to call attention to the security aspect because you have to you, you have to take the time to to get everything else in place and and. It's, you know, anyone, any CEO that says we're 100% confident in our security, well, that's just not how security works. And right. so y- you have to be careful in, in how much you advertise to people to come flock to your solution. Uh, it's definitely a, a fine line. And uh, yeah, humility goes a long way for sure. Yeah. All right. So I, I realize this is a little bit off topic, but I, I can't 
have you on the show and not <laughs> not pick your brain on this a little bit. And that is uh, organizational philosophy. And I realize this is outside security and privacy, but I mean, as somebody who puts together uh, a note-taking app, and I've got so many note-taking apps that I've been using over the years trying to organize all my thoughts and stuff. So I know from our discussions and email that you're you're a search and tag kind of guy. So the way you like to organize your information is I don't put them in folders. I don't care about folders. That's a rigid hierarchical system that I don't care about. You know, just give me search terms. Let me search for it. That's how I find all my stuff. And I think you called it bucket note taking. Uh, so ex- describe a little bit about how this works, how you keep your stuff organized and why that's better than the old, you know, folder hierarchy system. Well, I don't know that it's better, but, it, you know, I guess, you know, note taking, there's just like a, a more than a thousand, a million ways to do it. And it's why every day there's a new note taking app or a new note taking system. Mm-hmm. And for me, I'm very like unsophisticated when it comes to note taking. I, I, I more use note taking as a way to just really quickly dump something so I can get back to work. It, mm-hmm. If I'm taking a note on something, it's because I'm busy in the act of uh, consuming something and I see something that's interesting. And so I'm not going to sit there and... Uh, you know, stop the other activity to, to organize the note. I just dump it really quick and, and hope that I, I don't know. I probably of, of the, I don't know how many tens of thousands of times I've taken notes. I probably come back, come back to my notes like 1% of the time. And I, I don't know if that's the, the average for people is that they taking notes is more of a, like an insurance policy. And in, in the case they need something, I, I do believe that it, that it is a large part of it is just sort of, uh, in case you need it one of these days. And so, yeah, there's a lot of systems for how to organize your notes. And, and for me, the, the most standard form, and, and that's why we call it standard notes, is that it, it is its most primitive form, which is just you have notes and you have tags. And you can organize tags into folders, uh, you know, we give you that sort of flexibility. And that's very powerful for a lot of people. That's enough for most people. And search is enough for most people, but there are, uh, you can get really complicated and, and complex and intricate here in, in creating uh, sort of like networks of, of your personal notes uh, using two-way links, which, which is, you know, all the rage right now is something called a second brain sort of methodology of taking notes, which is taking notes, but always connecting a note to another note or another tag or another idea. Mm. And so this way, it attempts to mimic how the brains, this is not my definition, this is, or, or you know, whether or not I, I sort of uh, agree with this, but this is just how it's sort of touted, is that it allows you to construct this sort of neural network that mimics how the brain works to remember and recall information mm-hmm. by, by having sort of instantaneous sort of synapses light up. Um, mm-hmm. Like you're on one note, a single note, and then you see all these other connections and, and, and you start sparking with ideas. Mm. That's, the, that's, the, that's the cell, right? And it works for some people, right? It's a lot of fun to do. You create these really fancy sort of neural node structures. I don't know if you've seen those trees online, uh, those graphs that people zoom into and zoom out and it looks really elegant. <laughs> and a lot of people, it takes a lot of time to do this, by the way. Some people, and even before Second Brain was a thing, a lot of people would just spend a lot of time just organizing their notes more than like utilizing them. And some people might argue that it's sort of like a procrastination method. <laughs> it's it's like when you don't want to, when you don't feel like working in your office, what do you do? You clean it up, you organize it. <laughs> and so, right. and once it's all clean and tidy, you realize, oh, I still don't feel like working and, and you really have nothing to do at that point. And so, you know, some people will, will say that it's like that. It's like a lot of people spend all this time organizing their notes and it's just a way of spending time doing anything but working. And so I, I, I don't know that's always the case, but that's some, definitely something to look out for. And it's why I prefer sort of just the unsophisticated method of relying on search. Um, but but I think, I do think second brain could be useful for, for some people, let's say authors, researchers, people who are really uh, in, in deep, in academia or something where you're dealing with a tremendous amount of information, but whether it's useful for everyone, um, I think a lot of the movement today will have you believe so that yes, uh, you should spend an inordinate amount of time uh, organizing your notes because it will help you level up. It'll help you be more productive and smarter. And and this is where I get a tiny bit agitated about this movement Mm -hmm. is that, you know, no movement, all movements, typically 
try to sell you more uh, because there's no money in less. Like there's, <laughs> there's no money in saying, take less notes. And right, right. Uh, it's not a valid movement, except for this one right here, which, you know, it, it is, uh, goes against my own product. It's like, take less notes. Uh, it's not good for us. Uh, we want, we should be wanting you to take as many notes as possible, but you know, it's not a prescription, obviously. I, I'll never advise someone to, to take less notes or to do something that doesn't feel natural for them. But for me, anytime I've spoken up against second brain and people get confused, like when I tweet about this and they're like, well, why do you hate second brain so much? I don't hate second brain at all. Like, I just want to stand up for those people that feel left out when they see second brain and think to themselves, am I doing it wrong? Like, mm. oh, all this time, I've just been really unsophisticated about my notes. Am I less productive because of that? To, for me, all I want to do is come and say, no, you're probably even more productive because of that. And so I, I want to stand up for people that... Uh, who 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 may be unsophisticated and people have reached out to me when I, when I, you know in private of course it's always <laughs> the people that uh, they reach out in private and say thank you for for voicing this which uh, was really interesting to me because I, I I didn't know if I was the only one but as I I talked about it a little more people would reach out and say and and say, and thank you for for speaking about this like it's it feels very exclusionary the second brain movement because you have to go and learn it you have to go take a course you have to watch a bunch of YouTube videos. Uh-huh. And uh, for me, all I wanted to do was just say, look, if that's what you want to do, go for it. But there's nothing wrong with what you're doing now. There's nothing wrong with just using a search bar. In fact, search is a revolutionary concept. Like in the 90s, Yahoo was was creating links between everything. And if you wanted to find something, you'd go and so you want to look up osmosis, you'd go to Yahoo, you'd click science, biology, you'd look alphabetically, you find osmosis. Then Google came with this revolutionary concept called just type in osmosis and you find what you're looking for. And uh, so I think search is very powerful and uh, I've never struggled to find anything with search. And um, so that's, that's my intention. I have absolutely nothing against second brain. I think it's really cool, but uh, for, for the people that don't get it, and uh, who who are sort of just unsophisticated. My only purpose here is to say, there's nothing wrong with that, and you'll be just fine. All right. So here's here's my take on this. And so I'm I, I'm guessing I'm older than you are. Uh, and so and I've I've seen this be a generational thing, and uh, to the point where like maybe my daughters are, are in the opposite category as me. And we grew up with physical files and folders, Manila folders, you know, file cabinets. And when you put a document in one folder, it therefore did not exist in another folder. It was a hierarchical system and it was mutually exclusive. If I put a document somewhere, then it's not somewhere else. Uh, so you had to come up with all these crazy techniques for, you know, organizing your folders in some logical fashion so that you could find something when the time came. And then, yeah, we've been so inundated, inundated with, with data now. It's this massive haystack. And if you want to find a needle today, uh, search is is what most people use because it's just impossible to put all that stuff into uh, any kind of one system. So I, to the point where I've actually heard people say that computer science teachers uh, or programming teachers have a hard time explaining to kids coming in what a file system folder structure means. Like they're just too used to searching for everything. Like, what do you mean I got to put stuff in folders and create directories and and then directories within directories? Why why am I doing that? Why don't I just search for these things? It doesn't even cross their minds. It, like the paradigm shift can't can't happen. And so for me. I do both. I've got folders because here's here's what I worry about because I'm paranoid. If I can't search for it, it doesn't exist. If I if I have a big pile of things and I need to find something, but I can't search on it, I can't remember a, a term that will uniquely identify, you know, that one file or a, a few enough files that I could pick it out of a lineup. That it doesn't exist. I don't, it doesn't matter that I have that data. I can't get to it. So I I do a little bit of both personally. Uh, so anyway, that just. It, but the reason I ask is this has become anybody who's interested in organizing organizing has a religion has almost a religious fervor around how they do their organizing. But I think the key is you got to find what works for you. Right, and and that's the thing. It's that you know if you're on Hacker News, a lot of these posts tend to get really popular about how to organize your notes. And it's like these Zelkatessen. It's like this, I don't know, it's a complex German word for organizing your notes. And there's all these esoteric concepts and you have to learn how to do something. And that doesn't mean it's wrong, right? If you learn how to do something, it might actually be a very good thing that someone discovered something. But, you know, I, I think there's still a lot of merit in just uh, the simplest form of note-taking, which, just, which is just uh, jotting something down and probably you'll never need to look it up again. But for any any sort of project you're taking on, any sort of academic or you're authoring a book or research paper, then yeah, you definitely want to be far more deliberate in how you structure your data. 
But for everyone else who's just sort of um, capturing snippets of their life, I, I don't know, even know how many you'd capture in a lifetime. Uh, some people have like, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of them. That's crazy. But, you know, but, you know, for me, I have around 2,000 notes in standard notes. I've been using it for, for six years, which it, it doesn't seem like a lot. Right, but it, it, so it definitely depends. It depends on on who you are, how you like to, how you how your brain works, right? And uh, yeah, I definitely think whatever works for you. Just don't be super sort of uh, let down or, or or feel like inadequate or inferior because someone has a better system than you. I, I think, or a better app than you uh, right. in terms of uh, oh, I'm not using this app. Everyone else is using this app. Am I missing out on some productivity gains? Likely no. Maybe, uh, you know, but likely you're okay. Like just keep doing what you're doing if it's working for you. You don't have to go and and just append your life to uh, (laughs) take better notes. Well, now here's the other problem I have with this is because I've tried so many different apps over the years and used them in different ways. And I've used mind mapping software and and I've used Google Docs over over the years. I've used Apple's notes. I've used standard notes. I've used Joplin. I've used Obsidian. I've... (laughs) I've used so many different notes app and then other apps too. So now all of a sudden my data exists in all these different places, sometimes on servers, not even on my local computer anymore because they're strictly cloud-based apps. Now I'm also in the, having this problem of all of, all my files are not in my hard drive anymore. They're not in one place where I could easily back up and, and, and make sure I've got extra copies of these things and get to them in one place. If I happen to all of a sudden, let's say, I don't know, uh, one of these, note-taking apps that has cloud-based storage goes out of business. All of a sudden, my app, my, you know, my files are gone. And if I if I don't use them often enough, I may not find out for a year or two. And I'm like going back to look at that one document that I had and it's gone. So I'm curious, do you, do you have any strategies around how do I make sure that, <laughs> that I've got a handle on where all my files and data and notes exist and then and find some way to, you know, maybe centrally back them up? That that is another thing uh, I like about a lot of these uh, note taking apps that are that are not closed. They will let you export your stuff into formats that you can import somewhere else. Because right now I've got a bunch of stuff in OneNote that is not easy to to get out. So I, I think you know a, a lot of people voice this problem is that they feel that they have their data too scattered in, in so many different places, and they feel like that's a problem. It's, to me, it's not so obvious that that's a problem. In fact, you might want to diversify the locations of your data. It's like if you had a million dollars, do you want to put them all in one place under your bed? It's like, oh, well, you want to scatter them around and, and not just all in your house. You want to put them in, in banks, real estate. You know, you, Centralizing is actually a bit dangerous because it's like, yeah, okay, if one of the apps goes down, then yeah, you lose your data. But imagine if you had all your data in that app that went down, then that would be really bad. But if only if you had 10%, then you could probably overcome that. And so the question of having your data scattered and especially relying on third-party services rather than relying on your own uh, in-house infrastructure, I mean, that just gets you into a whole nother territory. I thought, so I, I recently bought a Synology NAS mm. and, uh, I th- and and I was using something called Trezor for encrypted mm-hmm. file. Uh, it's like a Dropbox alternative. And Trezor mm-hmm. is fantastic, amazing tool. I'm, I'm like blown away by, by how how... how how high quality their application is. And I, I just started feeling that I would just much rather prefer that I, it was a lot of data, right? I, I just much rather put it in my house. I'd rather self-host it. And so I got the Synology NAS and I was you know blown away. I was like, this thing is awesome. It's so easy to set up. And look at that, in, in a few clicks, I got my own treasure inside my own house. It's encrypted and I can mount it on my Mac OS uh, Finder. And I've had that running for a bit now and so the system is downstairs in the basement. It's collecting like cobwebs. And uh, I, I don't feel good about it anymore <laughs> I, I, because one, I'm sort of abandoning it, right? Like, and I'm, I'm afraid of bit rot. Mm. And I feel that it's sort of like landscaping. Like you have to take care of your lawn. Like you, you can't just let it be. It's not right. just going to stay beautiful. And so I thought I would... Uh, be the type of person that would maintain this thing, but it's downstairs. All my data is on it. I, I shouldn't even be saying this because now it's like <laughs> opening myself up, but I don't have backups. Um, I, I would have to buy another NAS to set up a backup somewhere else in the house. And I'm not doing all these things. And so I, I don't feel comfortable at all. And I thought I would. And I actually felt more comfortable having Trezor take care of it because Trezor has full-time people dedicated to yeah. this. 
And so it's not so obvious that you, you'd, you'd solve all your problems by centralizing your data in the house. In fact, it's even a little scarier because it's, it's now your responsibility to take care of this thing. And uh, yeah, it is scary. And so you don't, you don't immediately just solve all your problems by self-hosting. You, you just create, it's trade-offs. You create more problems. And you don't solve all your problems by centralizing your data in third-party services. Let's say you are using all these note-taking apps and you feel uneasy because your data is scattered. Well, how would you feel if you put them all in one place and that service then went down forever? You'd feel a lot worse. And, mm. and even if that service didn't go down, even if you're pretty confident in it, you would still have that sort of uneasiness of your data just being on one place if it were hacked or something like that. And so I don't know. I think there is an argument to scattering your data. I think that could be a, a sound strategy. And I think you'll find that if you solve that problem that you that a lot of people think they have, you'll just create a whole bunch of new problems. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think my my compromise on that is I like to use services that do both. I like I I don't mind it. Like I use Sync.com, which is another kind of a trust right kind of thing, and it allows me to have my own uh, encryption key that they don't control, which I like. But it my files exist locally that I can treat it like a folder, but they're synchronized to the cloud as well. So I have them here, and I can get to them here. And at worst case, I've always got those files, but they're also backed up to the cloud. So if there are cloud services that allow me to access my files locally or at least have copies locally but then synchronize to the cloud that's kind of to me the i i like having the kind of the both built-in suspenders you know looking ahead in your crystal ball what do you what do you see happening in the realm of privacy in the next few years um you know what do we have to look forward to and then you know maybe what do we what should we worried about what's coming down the pipe you know, I guess you could say, you know, the future doesn't, it's not a thing, right? It's just the, the cumulative sum of our actions today create the future. And so it's like, what are we doing today? What are we focusing on today? And how does that get us closer to the future that we all want to see? And I think, you know, for me personally, and, you know, everyone will have to choose their own battles and, and define their own threat model and what privacy and security means to them. For me, I've decided that, Encryption is paramount. Encryption is the thing that we fight for and we go to the streets for. And privacy gets a lot of attention, a lot more attention in the media and the press and by legislators who are who really lose nothing by giving you privacy uh, because all they want from you is that encryption. And I think that I don't know. I don't want to say that one is more important than the other. I think they're equally important. But I think we have to be clear with our definitions on how we define privacy and encryption and security and which ones really matter to us. And you know, if you were to say that the privacy of my search queries in Google are are just as important as, as my right to encryption of my own data, I would disagree. I would say that's definitely not true. I think that one is clearly more important than the other. And I think a lot of times we spend so much time chasing f frivolous privacy gains, like hiding our zip code and um, hiding our sort of looking up sports scores on Google. Like we, we would refuse to use Google for that. And I, I think that in, in that case, it can be sort of a hobby. And I feel that I would sort of just ask people to... I don't know, question what privacy is to them, why they want privacy, what do they want privacy for, and what is the future world that they want to see? Is, is it one where we're trending towards, which is, you know, Illinois today, really some new bill with stricter privacy laws. Privacy laws are all the rage. Um, it's, yeah, legislators have no problem giving you privacy laws. And uh, I, I don't want people to think that that's, anything to do with encryption. It's nothing to do. It's completely separate. And while we're gaining all these little privacy wins, uh, and governments love reining in corporations. I mean, that's that's like a hobby of theirs. And so reining in big tech, you know, that, that's easy for them to do. But at the same time, we we may be losing our uh, the real battle here, here, which is encryption. And, and to me, that would be a travesty. And, and this is something I'm, I actually have existential dread over, which is, this is something you don't want to take your foot off the gas on is, is the fight for encryption. Again, give me encryption or, or I don't want to say give me death here, but uh, <laughs> you know, it, it is that paramount. Yeah. Uh, encryption is freedom. Encryption is the right to, to think freely, is to explore, is to be left alone, is to not be interrogated. 
is to to think courageously. At Center Notes, our slogan is "Write fearlessly" because encryption gives you that space that you, that humans need to think comfortably and without the the thought that someone is snooping or going to judge me based on my thoughts. Encryption is freedom. Encryption is is very very paramount and. Um, I can easily predict that we're, we're going to get more privacy in the future from and, and have stricter laws and how data is shared between corporations. I, I think that's a given almost. But I'm very uncertain about encryption. They're not giving up, right? They're, they keep mm-hmm. wanting to take it away. And um, I think at least in the U.S., we're, we're doing a decent enough job of, of you know, upholding our stance here. But it's not to be, you know, I don't want it to be mistaken that our, our advances on privacy are, are doing anything for our fight for encryption. This is very separate. And uh, encryption is always going to be under threat. And this is something that we should never, ever compromise on. Well, I think I think both those could probably be summarized with the notion of that so many of these corporations and governments are both saying you can private from everybody but us. You know, they they all want to reserve their own access to your data at, at the expense of everybody else. You don't trust anybody else, but you could trust us. And they're both kind of saying that about, about the other. I think is maybe the way that 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 fall, that falls out. Right. All right. One one last question. What's uh, what's next for Standard Notes? What's coming up for you guys? Are there any other projects that you might be working on? What's what's in the future for you guys? So we are. You know, I guess while other applications are are having a good time implementing chat GPT into their app and, uh, you know, thinking for you, we are focusing on just making standard notes, just feel even more secure, more hunkered down, more of a steel vault. And so we're working on things like a security key integration, things like YubiKey. Uh, this is very hard to build much, much harder than we anticipated. Cause there's a lot that goes into it, like backup keys, multiple keys, things mm-hmm. like that, fallback mechanisms, Obviously, there's only so much you could do with privacy and security, and 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 you know, I, I guess we we re- maximize that over the years, but this will always be our our focus is remaining, I don't know, unintricate and and, and very approachable, and bringing that to security. And uh, I, I guess I should say that throughout this whole conversation, where I, I've mentioned how. I guess rigid we are about privacy and security. It won't feel like that to you while you're using it, and that's right. a, that's the most important part. Is we don't make it, it your burden. We don't typically privacy and security products make it you know have a really cumbersome UI or, or UX. And our goal has always been to just make it that there's really no difference from you using standard notes or simple note. It, it, it's the same exact. It's just a password. It's just a password. All your keys are generated from that. Uh, password as long as you remember that you're in and uh, you get the sort of uh, the the best the industry has to offer with regards to encryption algorithms uh, argon 2 and xchacha 20 um, you know something that not a lot of uh, sort of applications tout but we make uh, we made the upgradability of our encryption infrastructure very easy to do and it sounds like nothing but it's actually really hard to upgrade your choice, your algorithms in your encryption systems because mm-hmm. you have to uh, re-encrypt all user data and things like that. And so it's why you find that a lot of password managers still use a different password generation mm-hmm. function called PBKDF2, mm-hmm. whereas Argon2 is, is, is definitely where it's at in terms of, so PBKDF2 is, is CPU bound and CPU computation is very cheap for us now, uh, whereas Argon2 is memory hard and these things are very expensive to do. Uh, so yeah, we're, we're we're hardcore focused on security. Uh, with regards to like the softer stuff, uh, productivity things, a lot a lot of cool stuff in the pipeline. A lot of things we've done in the past just three months that have outnumbered the things we've done over the past few years. Things like a really cool what we call the super editor, which is our sort of flagship editing software now, which allows you to do really cool stuff inside of a note. You can sort of link other notes. You can have infinite bulleted lists, encrypted photos, and images and videos and audio files directly inside the mm-hmm. note. Um, these are big steps for us because again, encryption makes all these things really hard mm-hmm. and it's why it took us so long. And things were sort of in the R and D phases on a web clipper. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really exciting. Um, but yeah, just, uh, just working to make the everyday user experience as uh, pleasurable to use as possible. And uh, we're, we're making great strides there and, uh, users have been really happy with, with the stuff we've been putting out in the last few months. So we've, so we've sort of been on a tear <laughs> shipping software faster than ever. 
uh, we're just having a lot of fun building this. And, uh, you know, I hope your audience gets a chance to check it out. Well, I've been checking it out and, uh, it's, it's fantastic. I really enjoy it. It's a great tool. It, despite all this focus on security, you're right. It doesn't get in your way. You don't notice it. It's just there. Uh, and you get access to all these really awesome features to be honest. So yeah, I'll definitely, uh, I have a link in the show notes for everybody to check that out. Mo, thanks for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you. I really enjoyed our discussion. Likewise. Thanks, Gary. I had a lot of fun talking to Mo. He and I talked a little bit offline as well, uh, before and after the interview, and had several emails back and forth and signal messages and all sorts of stuff. So we've been talking quite a bit, and he's a great guy, and I really enjoyed talking with him, and I was really happy to get him on the show. So definitely check out Standard Notes. You just go to standardnotes.com. They do have a free tier, so you can give it a test drive if you want to check it out. And as usual, I kept my interview guest on for a little bit longer. I got some bonus content for the patrons. We got into some more technical questions about how you harden a web app. And I asked him, you know, what's the process of a third party? How does that work? What does it cost? Do you control what gets released? So we dig into that a little bit in the bonus podcast just for my patrons. All right, that's going to do it for this week. If you haven't already, check out the new merch store. You can buy some fun dragon swag. Go to fdsd.me slash merch, M-E-R-C-H. The book, of course, is also out, the new fifth edition. Go to fdsd.me slash book for more information. If you've read the book and you really like it, I would love to get some really nice five-star reviews on Amazon. If you don't like it for some reason, send me some feedback. It's in the book. There's a place you can send me an email there so I can make sure I make the next version better, or maybe even add a note. Uh, there's a there's an online website that I maintain with updates for the book, you know, things that may have changed, or if I find anything wrong in the book, there's a, there's a webpage for that. The fdsd.me slash book page has a link to, uh, to the, the updates page. You know, it, things change. So as that happens, and if I get good feedback, I will add some notes there. All right, that's going to do it. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I've got some great interviews coming up. Subscribe if you haven't. That way you won't miss them. Tell your friends about the show and the book. I would much appreciate that. Spread the word. And until next week, as always, everyone, stay safe out there. And don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>